Please turn with me back in your Bible to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We're going to be covering verses 27 to 40, the end of the chapter. Verses 27 to 40. Let me give you a word about how the sermon is sort of structured today. Given that this is such an interesting narrative, I, I, after looking through it, I thought the best thing perhaps to do was to walk through the story, just kind of verse by verse, trying to explain what's going on here. Like, what, what, what are the details? What does this all mean? And then as we go, I'm going to give points of application. I'm going to give two points about maybe halfway through, and then I'll give three points at the end. And I've titled the sermon, uh, Paul is Falsely Accused and Suffers Unjustly. And this will relate to anybody who ever experiences anything like this uh, in their own lives. Paul is falsely accused and suffers unjustly. I'll have two negatives, two don'ts in application. I'll have three do's, three things we should do uh, as we go. So I'll let you know about those as we move forward. Let's look again at today's passage. Before I start rereading it, just to catch you up to speed, if you don't remember or if you weren't here previously, Paul has decided to go to the city of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is virtually entirely, I think it is entirely, Jewish at the time. Over 10,000 people, perhaps even tens of thousands of the Jews living there are Christian Jews at the time. James is the leader of that church with the elders there, and Paul comes in, and Paul has a bad reputation because he's been teaching the Gentiles, and there's tension between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church, and Paul wants to smooth over these tensions. Since you've already heard the text you will see that there was not a lot of smoothing over that happens in the story today, unfortunately for Paul. But in God's sovereignty, there's a purpose to this. Paul brings a financial gift from these Gentile churches, and he also wants to try to bring about harmony uh, between the leadership of the two different groups. We will jump in here. He's been asked to uh, be involved in some ceremonial law proceedings. Is Paul bound by the ceremonial law? No, but he chooses to do what last week? To submit himself to Levitical ceremonial law, not because he has to to be saved, not because he has to to be obedient to God. He has the right to not submit to the ceremonial law, but he chooses as an ethnic Jew himself to submit to those laws, including offering animal sacrifice for the Nazarite vow, the four people taking the Nazarite vow, and to be ceremonially clean which would involve washing rituals as he goes into the temple because he wants to not give offense to the Jews, both Christian and non-Christian, so that he can become a Jew to the Jews that he might win the Jews. And so he is trying to do all he can to create harmony between the two groups. And let me just say one quick word. I think Greg mentioned it very briefly a number of months ago, and I'll just say a brief word about it as well. Verse 25 may be a little bit confusing. Back, it's a reminder of the Jerusalem Council from chapter 15, but he summarizes it in verse 25 of Acts 21. James says to Paul, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should, one, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, two, and from blood, three, and from what has been strangled, and four, and from sexual immorality. Now, a lot of, there's a lot of confusion as to why these restrictions were given to Gentile Christians. Okay, just let me give you the briefest attempt at what I think is a good approach to thinking about this. I think there's two issues that are interconnected here. I think, number one, 
Paul, uh, James and Paul agreed. They want the Gentiles to not unnecessarily offend their Jewish brothers and sisters, okay? Uh, so th they want to do some things that would not unnecessarily offend the Jewish uh, sensibilities, but also all four of these items are attached to their pagan history. Think about it. What are the four items? They're, they're strange, aren't they? Meat sacrificed to what? Idols? So we're talking about pagan temple worship, right? Now, just, just pause for a second real quick. If you are living in the Roman Empire, remember? Which we are. Remember, we said it was 57 AD last week. We're still in 50. We'll be in, we'll be in this for a while. So it's still 57. If you are a Gentile, if you're not a Jew and you live anywhere in Rome, you have spent your entire life being involved in animal sacrifice at pagan temples. Your, your father and your mother have offered pagan sacrifice in pagan temples. Your grandfather and your grandmother on both sides have offered pagan sacrifice in pagan temples. They've offered uh, both, both uh, vegetation and animals to those gods. You have gone to temples your entire life. And you know what happens at a temple? These four things happen. You not only worship an idol, you kill an animal and offer it, and then you eat the animal in a ceremonial meal to Zeus or whoever, Hermes, whoever. And then the meat you're eating is not just offered to an idol, it's also full of blood. Because they don't… Now, this is graphic, I apologize. The Jewish people slaughtered, they, they slit the throat and the blood is all drained out before the sacrifice. There's no blood in the meat because in the Old Testament you weren't supposed to eat blood. These people strangle the animal and the animal still has the blood within the animal when they kill it and they eat it with the blood still in it. So strangled meat with blood still in it is meat sacrificed to idols. And you know what else they did at pagan temples? They slept with temple prostitutes. This was throughout the entire Roman Empire. It is all over the place testified to. They called them sacred women and sacred men, holy men and holy women, which were the temple prostitutes. And they were not holy at all, but they were set apart to their false gods. And so, both to be sensitive to Jewish sensibilities, but also to completely turn away from their pagan past, that seems to be why those items are picked out for the Gentiles. It's not a way of salvation. It's a way of trying to be sensitive to the Jews and getting away from their pagan history. Now. Look with me at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. When you read these passages quickly, you just, it's easy to miss what's happening. Did you know it is not the Jews from Jerusalem who start this riot? It's the Jews from Asia. If you remember Asia, we've been talking about this. That is the, the central city of that, of that area was Ephesus. Remember, that's where Paul spent three years. Do you remember? I'll mention it again, the Hall of Tyrannus, six days a week, or six days a week, six hours a day, five hours a day. Paul's been there for two years. The, we know that of all the Jewish synagogues that had animosity with Paul, the one in Ephesus in, in Asia Minor, that synagogue seemed to hate Paul more than anyone else. You know why? Now, just imagine this. Think about it from their perspective, okay? A guy comes into town preaching, they think, a false messiah, and it splits their synagogue in half. 
Can you imagine you, 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 the church you grew up in? Imagine you had a huge, uh, say a large church growing up, and say somebody comes into that church and preaches a message that half the people think is heresy, half the people think is true, and the church splits in half. Can you imagine the, the tense feelings that would exist between the two? It shouldn't be that way, but that just you can imagine what, what would happen. Paul is considered the one who split the synagogue, even the synagogue ruler converting, and people converting by the dozens and perhaps even by the hundreds by the time he's done to Paul. So listen, number one, do they know what Paul looks like? But we're used to seeing, you know, you can see someone's picture. You just go online, like there, there, there's a picture, right? We, we, you can share someone's picture across the world. Back then, it was hard to know what someone looked like. What do you have, like a drawing? How accurate is that going to be? You can describe him, but listen, the, the Jews from Asia, and if some of us were doing the drawing, it would be really hard to tell who, who was… If I did the drawing, I'd be like, okay, a man with, with stick arms apparently has done something. It would not be good. But no, these people from Ephesus, had they just spent a couple years with Paul in their city? They knew Paul by sight. They had seen him. They knew about him. Number two, did they know about Trophimus the Ephesian in verse 29? Trophimus the Ephesian. They knew Trophimus by his face. They knew Paul by his face. They were both from Ephesus. These were the Jews from Ephesus, from Asia. They're the ones in the temple who spot Paul, and they make assumptions about Paul that are not true. They make assumptions about Paul that are not true. And let me just begin with, with two uh, negative applications, two things we should not do. Number one, we, we should reject, and I'll explain what I mean, we should reject pragmatism, and number two, we should reject slander. We should reject pragmatism, and we should reject slander. Let me start with pragmatism. Now, you've heard the word pragmatism, pragmatic. Sometimes we mean it as in what is practical, what, what kind of works day to day, and that, that has an innocent use, but I mean it in the more technical sense. Pragmatism is different from living according to principle, okay? Living according to principle means I am going to do what is right because it is right, not because it is useful. Now, just think about the world we live in. Who lives this way? I'm going to do what's right even though it's going to cost me my what? I'm going to do what's right even though it's going to involve a pay cut at work. I'm going to do what's right even though I'm going to lose my job in as humble a way as I can. I may lose my job over whatever it may be. Living from principle means I do what is right because it is right and because it honors our Lord. Pragmatism says this, what result is it going to have? And if the result with a cost-benefit analysis, if the result is worth it for me to do what is wrong, to get what I want, then if the price is right, I will compromise my principles to get what I really want. Now listen, if you're living according to pragmatism, what Paul did in these chapters is utter folly. It's foolishness. If Paul wants to live a long and happy life, Paul, stop going to Jerusalem. I know you've got good reasons. But just stay away. Don't risk it. But Paul says, no, I, I know that this could cost me, and it's going to cost him. But let me just footnote this. He's about to be put in Roman chains. It's 57 AD. They're going to put the, they're going to put the chains on him in May of 57 AD, the month that we are living in, in our New Testament study. They're going to put the chains on him in, in May of 57. Those chains will not be taken off until May of 58. Nope. May of 59. Nope. May of 60. Nope. May of 61. Somewhere around 62 is when the chains come off. Paul, that's not useful, beneficial. Come on, make a decision based on what will work, not what is right. 
And Paul, it would be so easy, and I, I think in our world today, it will become increasingly strong for, strongly tempting for Christians to do what they think will work in the short run while ignoring what by principle they must and what they ought to do. And I, I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. I won't tell the story. You know the story. But Joseph was a man who was driven by principle. Okay, think about this. He's sold into slavery. He's, he's down in Egypt. He's working for Potiphar, Remember? He's a young man. He's an attractive man. Potiphar's wife, alone in the house, says, sleep with me. She's been saying this for, for apparently for months or maybe at least weeks. Joseph had all kinds of fleshly arguments he could have made to justify this. But what does he say? He turns to her and he says to Potiphar's wife, he says, your, your husband's given me control over everything in his house except for you because you are his wife. And then he says, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? What does he say? How could I do this wicked thing and sin against What? God. He was driven by principle. And what did that principle cost him? It sent him where? To jail for multiple years because he did what was right. We must not be pragmatic. We must be principled in the way that we live. Number two, we must ourselves reject slander. Is what they said about Paul true? Did Paul bring a Gentile, unclean, into the inner courts of the temple where only Jews are allowed to go? No. You know what happened? The people around did what? They made an assumption, right? It was a circumstantial guess. Here's what, they, here's what they knew. They knew Paul is telling Gentiles they don't have to keep the ceremonial law, right? That's what Paul's been telling Gentiles. Remember the book of Galatians or whatever. Pick any of his books. Galatians. They knew that Paul had been telling Gentiles they don't have to keep the ceremonial law. They had an assumption. We know why Paul's here. You know why Paul came to Jerusalem? He came here to flaunt his freedom that he thinks he has in the Messiah. So what he did was he wants to show everybody we don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. So he brought a filthy, unclean pagan, Trophimus from Ephesus, and he, he walked him right past the dividing line in the temple where no uh, Gentile is allowed to go on, on penalty of death. And he just walked him in there to prove, look, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free to do what I want. He's flaunting the fact that he is free to violate these laws. Is that what Paul was doing? He was actually bending over backwards to what? Keep the laws. He was paying a bunch of money for, remember, 12 animals, the lambs and the sheep, the, the, the ram. He paid all kinds of money. He himself was in the process of becoming clean. He was actually doing the very thing they said he wasn't going to do, which was being ceremonially clean. So we need to, be, we need to reject slander. You've probably heard um, flattery is what you would say to someone's face, but you would never say it behind their back. Gossip is what you would say behind their back, but you would never say it to their face. Say that again. I think that's… I didn't make that up. That's a, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Flattery is what you would say to someone's face, not behind their back. In other words, you're lying to them to get what you want from them through manipulation, not because you actually think what you're saying is true. That's flattery. I speak well of you to get you on my side so I can get what I want from you, and then when I'm done, I throw you away. On the other side, gossip says, I'm going to say something behind your back that I would never dare say to you in, in person. That would be a form of slander. And we as Christians must be careful. Number, two, two big things we got to know about. Number one, number one, slander can be true or false. I should be careful here with my definitions. You can say something bad about someone that could be absolutely true or false, and you should never say something false about someone. But most of the time, we should not say something that is true 
that is bad about someone. There are times where we simply have to talk about certain things someone's done wrong in a context of discipline or whatever it may be. You know, if you're, if you're a principal at a school or you're a teacher, you're going to have to have a conversation about misbehavior of a child, okay? That's not wrong to talk about the misbehavior of the child with the parents or whatever it may be. There's a place at times, but can we admit most of the time we talk bad about somebody? Is it out of love for their good? No, it's because you get, it's this feeling that you get, right, of having insider knowledge maybe being a little superior because it wasn't me doing that thing, whatever. We need to reject slander with all that we can find and see how much it harms others. Potiphar's wife slandered Joseph with a lie, and it cost him dearly, although God was still ultimately in control. All right, let's pick back up with our story here. Look what happens next. Verse 29. Let me start back 28. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, that's the Jewish people, and number two, against the law, and number three, against this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen, there he is, Trophimus the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I just want to pause for a moment. I'm going to use some images just really quickly on the screen just so you can get a picture for what is going on here. Um, you recognize, I'm sure, the Temple Mount today with the Dome of the Rock in the middle and the Al-Aqsa Mosque off to the left side of the screen. Uh, there's obviously a lot of political tension here with the different views and the different religions, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim around this area. You see the green outline there. That green outline around the base is where uh, the Temple Mount was when Jesus and Paul were living. Okay, before it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, that's the outline of the Temple Mount. And here's, let's flash back to the time period. This is what it looked like, okay, with the red now around the outline. That's what the Temple Mount uh, looked like at the time both of Jesus and of Paul. And if you'll see here, uh, you will notice this area right here is called the Fortress of Antonia, named after Mark Antony. Uh, the Fort, Fort Antonia, that is where the cohort and the soldiers and the centurion and the, all these, that's where they, they are. The Roman soldiers are up there, and very likely the Roman soldiers were even around the top of this portico that runs behind the temple, runs down this area, and runs all the way, three sides of the temple, that, that area. They would have soldiers very likely lined around the three sides of the temple. They can keep watch down if there are any disturbances. Now listen, remember, the Jewish people at this time want Rome off their back. And every time they have a national celebration, the celebration's usually celebrating, like the Exodus, their independence from political suppression like Egypt. And Rome is their new Egypt. And so when they celebrate Passover, they really want the Romans out of there. And they have 500,000 Jews come to town for celebrating, right? It's like a Georgia Saturday, but even bigger. It's 500 to half a million Jews come from the whole world, and they're gathered together in this gigantic temple, 36 acres. It's the size of your neighborhood, okay? Th that Temple Mount is huge, absolutely massive, bigger than it looks in this image. And uh, real quick, let me just show you a few things. This is an artist 3D reconstruction here. You've got the temp you've got the the Fort of Antonia right in front of us, and you can see their angle, right, looking down on the Temple Mount. Very likely, because we know where the Nazarites did their cleansing, which is almost certainly where Paul is, okay? The Nazarites did their cleansing in this little area right there at the corner top of the temple there, and Paul's probably there, right around there, when he gets first taken in by, this, by this crowd. There's also a little line here, right here, you can see it by these steps. It goes all the way around the temple. 
And it says, Josephus told us what it said, but then we ended up finding it. In the year 1871, we found one of these. It's just incredible. Archaeology helps the Bible out a lot. And then 1935, also, we found another one. This is one of them from 1871. I know you cannot read Greek in capital letters there, but it, maybe some of you can. But what, what it says there is, any foreigner who crosses this four-and-a-half-foot-tall barricade in the middle of the temple court, anyone who crosses, any Gentile who crosses this will have himself to thank for his ensuing death. And the Roman government actually gave the Jews permission to kill people, capital punishment, in this one instance. If they violated the temple protocol, even the Jews were allowed to put someone to death if they did this. Do you see why the accusation against Paul is no small thing? They're saying, Paul, you brought a Gentile past one of these barricades. You brought them… So, remember, it's the court of the Gentiles, then it's the court of the Jews. You have the court of the women and the court of Israel and the priests. You brought him where you're not allowed to bring him. Let me show you another angle here. So, Paul, the, the, the Nazarites took care of their, their things right there in that little section of the temple. Paul was almost certainly in this area somewhere in there. And when he has taken it first, now you'll notice these doors that are shut when Paul is taken out. Very likely it's these two sets of doors. Those doors may look like they're, they're normal-sized doors. I'm not making this up. Those doors are like, according to Josephus, these doors were over 50 feet tall each. So, when you're trying to get orientation for how big this place is, those doors took 20 men to close. So, when Paul gets in trouble, they're rushing him probably out this gate here, the Corinthian gate. As they take him out front, it's also probably the beautiful gate from earlier in Acts. As they take him out, they say, okay, quick, there's defilement going on. Quick, everyone shut the doors. So, they have 20 men go to each set of doors, and they're closing these 50 to 60 foot tall doors, which takes time. You have to clear people out of the way. They close both sets of doors, and Paul is rushed out here somewhere away from the barricade because there was a Jewish belief that you don't spill blood within the precincts. You got to get them out to the court of the Gentiles if we're going to spill his blood. So, they get him out, and they're just punching Paul. They're scratching Paul. They're scraping Paul. They're spitting on Paul. I'm guessing they're slapping Paul. This is a giant crowd, zealous charged up. These are not believing Jews. These are unbelieving Jews, and they are attacking Paul. And you see here, people look down from uh, Fort Antonia, and they say, hey, we, we got to deal with this. We got to go. And so, they send people down, uh, troops down, to take Paul over to the fortress of Antonia. Look with me at verse 32. Let me start at verse 31, rather. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. This could be as many as 160 soldiers coming down. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with uh, two chains, probably one to two different soldiers. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. The very same words said of Jesus in Luke's gospel, away with him, crucify him. So, just real quick, th this is an artist's guess, okay? We don't know where the stairs were. The stairs could have been this prominent. I, I sort of doubt this. They may have been here. They may have been hidden underneath this portico. We're not sure. But there was a set of stairs leading out of the temple court up to the fortress, and Paul is taken up the stairs. 
It is a guess, but Paul may have been standing right up where this dot is when he gave this address that will be in next Sunday's sermon. He's somewhere on the top of the stairs near the fortress looking down on the, on the people, and he's going to speak from an elevated position, probably right around this spot. He's speaking down to the Temple Mount, and he is going to address uh, his Jewish kinsmen. Look with me at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying… Now, the Hebrew language probably means the Hebrew dialect, which would be Aramaic rather than classical Hebrew. It's probably Aramaic that he's about to speak uh, here in this moment. Now, let me just say something real quick here. Remember Josephus, that first century non-Christian, Jewish historian? He tells us both about the Egyptian here, so this guy thinks Paul's the Egyptian, or maybe one of the assassins. What is that? Josephus tells us more details about these two groups. Real quick, listen to this. There was an, this is Josephus from the first century, not a Christian. There was an Egyptian, false prophet, that did the Jews much mischief, for he was a cheat and pretended to be a prophet and got together... Uh, men with him that were deluded by him. These he led around about from the wilderness to the mount, which was called the Mount of Olives, and he was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place. And if he could but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people, he intended to domineer over them. But Felix, remember, he's the governor when this text is being written. Paul's going to talk to Felix in a minute. But Felix, he's the current Pontius Pilate. He's the current Roman governor of Judea. But Felix prevented this attempt and met him with his Roman soldiers. And when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with a few others, while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive, but the rest were dispersed. Okay, now get this. So you get that? That's, that's the, this guy thinks Paul is that guy. Paul's like, not even close. Okay, that's not who I am. But secondly, the assassins were called the Sicarii. You may have heard of the Sicarii. That's the Greek word here. Listen to what Josephus tells us about the assassins. There sprang up another sort of robbers in Jerusalem called the Sicarii, the assassins, who slew men in the daytime, in the midst of the city. This they did chiefly at the festivals. This, by the way, is a festival, Pentecost. In the midst of the city, when they mingled themselves among the crowd and concealed daggers under their garments which they stabbed those who, with which they stabbed those who were their enemies. Now, do you get this? The Egyptian is not killed. His followers scatter, and there's this group called the Assassins who go around the temple during festivals, and they find people they want to kill, and they pull a dagger out, and they stab them, and they put the dagger back, and they act like they're not the killer. They act like they're horrified, and they can't be caught. They're hard to catch. Okay, the tribune thinks Paul is either the Egyptian or a Sicari, and Paul's like, you can search me. I don't have a dagger, and I, I, I'm not from Egypt, okay? I'm not, I'm not that, and so he explains who he is. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. Please look at verse 39. I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given permission, Paul began to speak to the people. So I want to give you three positive applications now. I'll just tell you the, the three of them, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, trust God's providence. Number two, 
await God's judgment. And number three, imitate Christ's example. Trust God's providence, await God's judgment, and imitate Christ's example. If you were Paul, it would be so tempting, would it not? Is Paul, think about it, is Paul trying to do what's right? Is he bending over backwards to try to do what's right? Is he giving up his freedom to serve others and love them well? Has he raised for years a collection of money for Jews in Jerusalem? Has he done all you can imagine to love these people well? And when he gets there, he himself being a Jew, Paul's not in any way opposed to the Jews. He loves the Jewish people. He would trade his salvation for the Jewish people, he says. When Paul gets there, he's doing everything right to the nth degree, and everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. Would it not be tempting for Paul to go, God, what are you doing? Like, it's a deal. Like, I do for you, you do for me. This is how the Christian life works. I do something for you, you do something for me. That's not, that's not how the Christian life works. Paul, although he is acting in obedience to God, he receives some painful providences and some false accusations. And now he's in chains. Remember, he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. This was shameful. But Paul does not distrust God. Instead, he trusts in God's providence, knowing that whatever is happening now is mysteriously part of God's good and sovereign plan. Just like Joseph had no idea for those 13 years, God, what are you doing? And suddenly he sees the reason. Now, are we always going to see the reason in this life for why God ordains what He does in our life in the details? No. Sometimes we will see reasons, crystal clear. Other times we just have to trust the reasons that are in this text of Scripture, but we don't, it doesn't make sense to us. Some of these reasons will not be revealed to us until eternity, but we must trust in the good providence of God. And I, I'm going to read to you, this is, it's a bit tear-jerking, I admit to you, but a girl I went to high school with, Jerry taught her in, uh, in Bible. I won't, I won't say her name just because I don't feel that that's necessary, but she graduated a little bit after I did, and she's a believer. She, she definitely loves the Lord greatly. But, but she and her husband have been going through some, some really difficult things, and um, she's just been posting this on social media. So I just saw this on Thursday, part of what she was saying. But um, I'll just tell you the story quickly. They had their first son, and he's doing well. He's you know, several years old. They got pregnant their second time, and uh, they were 21 weeks pregnant when they had a miscarriage, which is just heart-wrenching. Now they had their third son, and she was at 18 weeks, two days, a couple of weeks ago, and they miscarried again. And she had a picture uh, holding the child after the delivery at 18 weeks, uh, two days. I mean, you cannot have a dry eye and look at the picture. But this is why I'm bringing that up. This past Thursday, this is what she wrote. This is in relationship. She's talking about her husband, but my goodness, is it not a testimony to God's providential goodness even in the midst of this? This is what she wrote. I love you. She's talking about her husband. I love you. I love the family that we have formed and the three children that you have given me. Though two of our sons are not with us on this earth, they are 100% a part of our family, and having lost them has and is making a lasting impact on the people that we are becoming. I believe that we will look back on these losses and praise God for His mercy and grace extended toward us in our great time of need. I believe we will look back and say, thank you, God. In your wisdom, you allowed us to walk through 
That, you allowed us to walk through that because of how you knew you would use this grief to forge us more into your likeness. This life is but a brief vapor, and I know that sooner than we know, we will all be reunited together in heaven, and oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Um, That's glorifying to the Lord. Does she understand, does she and her husband, do they understand exactly why this happened? No. Do you think that they're wrestling with doubt, maybe anger? I don't know what all they're wrestling with. I'm sure there's some of that. I would struggle. But at the end of the day, she can go on online and she can say, listen, I don't fully understand this, but I trust that God is good. It doesn't make sense, but I trust that He's good. That's what Paul is demonstrating here. Paul has no doubt of confidence in God's good providence. It's one thing for God to be in control and to be, have a distorted or evil character, right? But God has a good character, even when providence is mysterious to us and doesn't seem to… it's inscrutable, right? Romans 11, how inscrutable His ways. We can't fully figure them out. We can't fully parse that. We can't fully get to the bottom of why and when God does what He does, but we've got to know He's good and we can trust Him. I'll tell you, the main reason we know that is because there's a, there's a cross and there's an empty tomb. That's how we know that He's good in what He does for us. Number two, we must await God's judgment. We must await God's judgment. I won't make you turn there, but just let me read this. Listen, listen to these words. First Peter 2, just listen to this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, this, this, is, this is hard to do. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, if that was the end of the text, it would be depressing. But listen to the next line. This is What other religion has this next line? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. What other God has done that? There's an old poem written around the time of World War I that says, the other gods did strut, but thou didst stumble to a throne. What God is a God like thy? Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, falsely accused, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. How easy is it to want to strike back when someone says something? He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued what? Entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly await God's judgment. That's the point, right? He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Listen, is there perfect justice in this world? No, there's not. I'm not saying we shouldn't be just, biblically defined. We should be biblically just, but is there perfect justice in this world? No, but there is coming a day where perfect justice will be done, and only the Christian worldview can say that. 
According to atheism, first of all, there's no standard for justice. There is no actual objective justice in atheism. But even if there was, how would you ever sort out everything that's wrong with this world in time? You couldn't. But if Jesus rose from the dead, justice will finally come in perfect ways, absolute perfect justice. And we don't have to take vengeance. We can trust that God will sort out in the end all that has been done wrong to us. We don't have to lift up a stone to throw. We can say, God will take care of all this. He's the just judge. I will continue loving those who don't love me. I will continue being kind to those who are unkind and ungracious to me. I will continue speaking truth to those who lie about me, not because I'm better than somebody, but because I've been rescued by a good God, and that God will bring justice. And if this person gets to know Jesus while I'm loving them, then they will avoid the justice that they deserve because Jesus will have taken that justice for them. And finally, number three, and this just picks up with the same thing. Turn with me to John chapter 10, one book to your left, John chapter 10. Imitate Christ's example. Now, I'm already describing that, I know, but I want to emphasize one little moment just because it, it, it struck me as a beautiful moment of Jesus loving His enemies when they absolutely do not deserve it. Now, there's 40 confusing things in this passage that I'm not going to talk about, okay? But I've got to read it so it makes some sense. Okay, before I read this, this right here is Jesus' last public appearance in Jerusalem before He leaves for a little while, raises Lazarus, and then comes back for Passion Week where He will be crucified. Okay, this is like His last chance before He leaves, then comes back for His last week when He's going to be killed, okay? John 10, verse 30. Jesus finishes about the Good Shepherd, and He says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Obviously, they would consider that blasphemy. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? And he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, a couple other people have pointed this out to me to help me see it, but this is my last point. I'm going to wrap up with this imitate Christ example. This is why this passage strikes me as wonderful. So just follow me here. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They say, you can't say that. That's pure blasphemy. So what do they do? They reach down and they pick up large stones to stone Him to death. They are, now, this, when Jesus is talking to them, they are holding stones in their hands while the next conversation happens. They're holding stones. That's what makes this so astonishing. So get this. They're holding stones. They're holding them in their hand. Verse 31, they're picking up stones. So they're holding stones in their hands to kill Jesus. And what does Jesus go? Okay, hang on. Jesus goes, which good work are you going to kill me for? 
They say, no good work for, for blasphemy. You're calling yourself God. That's blasphemy. They're about to throw stones. And so Jesus just does a quick little argument. And, and uh, one commentator says he's, he's almost pushing back, trying to give space so he can have a moment for them to stop and think before they kill him. And that he pushes back with this strange little argument. In your book of Psalms, it's God calls rulers uh, uh, gods. And so what, what are you mad about me calling myself son of God? No, listen, I'm not going to explain that right now. But here's my point with that text. We went through that a couple years ago. My point is, Jesus is not proving right here much. All he's trying to say is, listen, stop for one second and think about how I'm using language and how the Old Testament, which we all agree is true, is using language. Just stop for a second. And he, gives, he buys himself maybe 30 seconds. Now, imagine you're Jesus, okay? They're holding the stones. You've bought yourself this little argument from Psalm 86. You've bought yourself, Psalm 82, you've bought yourself 30 seconds before they're going to try to kill you again. How would you use those 30 seconds? My personality, the way that they are treating him, you would want, my flesh would want to say something cutting, something that would embarrass and shame them. What Jesus, Jesus says, okay, listen, if you don't believe me, let me just lower the bar for a second. Just look at one of my works, my miracles. Just look at one of my works, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising, uh, Lazarus will be raised in a moment. Look at one of my works. And see if that miracle will lead you to faith in, in me. And then at that moment, he has to escape because they're going to try to arrest him. Here's why I bring that up. Jesus buys himself a few moments, and what does he do? He tries one more time to win them to faith. He tries one more argument to say, okay, if you, if you don't believe me, look at a miracle, study it, until you see that that's God working through me and you can begin to trust me. Jesus buys himself just enough time to try to win them one more time to himself. This is the way Paul is. Paul stands on those steps. He could have been like, thank goodness I'm out of here. Get me away from these crazy people. Get me out of here. Get me into the barracks. What does he say? Can I have one more chance to talk to them? Please, Mr. Tribune, please. He begged them. Give me one more chance to talk to them. And the Tribune lets him. Paul stands up just like with Jesus, and he gives one more call for them to repent, one more call for them to believe. And at that moment, just like with Jesus, they turn into a riot again. They don't listen. But he uses that last moment to try to love and win them well. So we need to go to the nth degree to love and be patient and kind and to speak the truth to those who would otherwise reject it. All right, let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, it, it is the, the reason why so many of us in this room have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ is nothing about any kind of moral superiority. We, we are actually the worst of the worst left to ourselves. It is by grace, but it is the character of our Lord. It is the patience of our Lord, His kindness meant to lead to repentance. It is His goodness, it is His justice, it is His love that is willing to shed His blood and to die cut off from You, God the Father, as He bears our sin. It is the character of our Lord that has won us to our Lord. And God, for anyone in the sound of my voice right now who does not trust in Jesus, God, I pray that You would open their eyes to see the beauty of the character of Jesus, that they would turn from other false saviors and idols and things that have control over us 
and that they, we, would turn from any idols and that we would trust fully in You and that we would find forgiveness and joy and peace and true and lasting satisfaction that can only be found in Your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God, help us little by little to imitate Paul as he imitates our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.